The Engineering Commons podcast explores challenges encountered by engineers, regardless of their field or industry. Join mechanical engineer Jeff, civil engineer Adam, and electrical engineers Brian and Carmen as they discuss issues of interest to today's engineering professional. This is episode 53, Storytelling, April 17th, 2014. So, Carmen, what's your favorite thing about swapping engineering stories? It's kind of universal. I mean, you talk to a group of engineers, and everybody seems to have, like, the same story. You know, everybody's got that time. They just wanted to beat the customer with a wrench because, you know, they changed specs at the last minute, or they're getting pushback from their boss on something, or they just had that nagging problem that bugged them for weeks, and in the end, there was a super simple solution that only seemed obvious afterwards. There's sort of the the classic story that, you know, the hero heads out into the into the wilderness and finds an adventure and struggles and gets pushed back. And then when things seem gloomiest, the hero gathers inner strength and pushes forward and overcomes and uh, wins in the end. But I'm not sure every, all engineering stories exactly end that way. Not on a positive note. I mean, sometimes <laughs> you just <laughs> you didn't make that deadline or you had a product tanked. And, right. you know, you talk to an engineer who's been in the field long enough and they'll all have that story, too. Yeah. So do you think it's just a matter of we like to hear other people, you know, we like to share the misery, so to speak. We like to hear that other people have gone through the same tribulations that we have. Yeah. I mean, you know, just the fact that you're a mechanical engineer and I'm an electrical engineer, I still know the feeling, you know, you get when you solve a difficult problem or have deadlines breathing down your neck. Right. And we talked to, uh, we'll come up with his name, uh, Bob, who had the, the troubleshooting book. Yes, yes. Troubleshooting Bob, I believe his name was. <laughs> Bob Schmidt. That was his name. And and uh, he was talking about that stories was sometimes – sharing stories were sometimes the most effective means of sharing information. It just wasn't a means of sharing emotional information or emotional data. Uh, technical data often got related in the stories as well. Yeah, it's a little nuggets of information you pick up and then you don't realize you need them until – one day you're like, oh, I remember that one time Steve was telling me about the, the transistor that was misbehaving. I wonder if that's what's going on here. And, you know, yeah. may or may not fix the problem, but it could send you down a path you wouldn't normally go down. Yeah. And, and we seem amazingly well-tuned to stories. We seem to, to enjoy stories and to, uh, to, uh, to absorb stories and recall stories. So there's something to this whole uh, storytelling method as, as a useful means for us to share information with one another. Yeah, it's a way of, way of proving yourself as an engineer. You know, if you got that story to reach out and pull back and or throw out there when you're sitting around having beers with other engineers, that time you had to jury rig a setup until you couldn't believe it worked, but that's what you had to do <laughs> to get the data. And <laughs> you had to beg, borrow, and steal every piece of equipment in the lab you could get your hands on. Right. <laughs> right. seem to do that on a weekly basis. It's amazing. Debugging ICs, you have to get things in a certain state before they start working or to isolate what's going on and you got to force different pin voltages and there's never enough banana cables in the lab. <laughs> right. Well, since uh, storytelling seems to be a, uh, a very human trait and uh, we as engineers really are people too, uh, we thought we'd talk in this episode about storytelling and how it relates to engineering and uh, uh, various aspects of uh, product design. And so for this episode, uh, our guest is uh, Craig Sampson, who's a mechanical engineer and product designer, educator, and executive level consultant. Uh, a graduate of Stanford University's Smart Product Design Program, he worked for the powerhouse design firm IDEO. 
in Palo Alto, California, before being asked to establish a corporate office for them in Chicago, Illinois. And over the subsequent decade, he built a 40-person team capable of world-class product design and innovation, and later led the firm's global healthcare practice. He's an advisor to the Engineering Design and Innovation Program within Northwestern University's Siegel Design Institute. Uh, he's a fellow at Farmhouse, the Innovation Center for Advertising Leader Leo Burnett. And he is founder and principal consultant for his current firm, TBD Innovation. Craig, welcome to the Engineering Commons. Thank you, Jeff. It's great to be here. That's a long introduction. You have accomplished quite a bit in the last 30 years. Well, I had 30 years. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I guess there's a certain restlessness in that. So we have known each other for a while because, uh, like Jim Tapple, who was the guest on our fourth episode of, of this podcast series, you and I were at Stanford at the same time in the Smart Product Design Program. Yes, uh, a great time in a galaxy far, far away, right? <laughs> it seems very long ago. Yes, it does. So, uh, Craig, uh, how did you get interested in engineering? You know, my path to engineering, um, like a lot of people, was was not so much intentional. I grew up in a really small town and didn't know much about many careers, but I was good at science and math. And so, oh, where can I apply this? And I think at the time, I enjoyed doing what I did well, what came easy to me. And so math and science and mechanics, physics, those sorts of things came very natural. And so I sort of stumbled into it, not really knowing what I was doing in college, but I heard that engineering was harder than physics, at least at University of Colorado. So I said, okay, I'll try that. I can always fall back. And after <laughs> freshman year in uh, the mechanics course, I go, oh, this is it. This is what I like. Right. You know, it's interesting in high school, I was a good student in a really poor school, like, you know, it was very limited educational opportunities. And shop class was a big part of that, mostly because most of my classmates weren't going on to college. Mm -hmm. And I loved shop. I loved wood shop and so forth. But it wasn't until years later that that sort of came together and go, oh, these really are part of the same thing in terms of, you know, whether it's doing the calculations, being a good sort of um, analytic technical person or building mm -hmm. something and understanding it more empirically it's all part of being an engineer. And so when you headed off to college, did you know you wanted to be a mechanical engineer or did you think about, you know, civil engineering or electrical engineering, some other discipline? Oh, I was so naive. I go, well, civil sounds interesting um, because architecture is kind of a cool designerly sort of thing. Mm -hmm. um, but then I realized um, if you study civil engineering, basically things don't move. It's mostly statics, not dynamics. If, if things move and you're a civil engineer, generally you're in trouble. Right. Wacomaneros <laughs> bridge. It, it's, it's a, it's a bad thing. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so, so that, so that was one move. And then I go, well, flying sounds cool. This is like my naive, like, so I'll go into aerospace. It sounds kind of fun. And basically freshman aerospace is identical to freshman mechanical engineering. And that's why, like, oh, there's this thing called mechanical engineering. And, and so how, how did you get from uh, university of Colorado to Stanford? Hmm. A lot of luck. Um, <laughs> But uh, it was funny when I when I was wrapping up and I, I'd gotten interested in design, but I didn't really know much what it was. I was like taking some independent study in human factors with a teacher at CU. Um, and I was just starting to discover there's this thing called design. Mm -hmm. And uh, I thought for a few minutes about, do I want to become a freshman at Art Center and get a whole other degree in industrial design? I go, no, I think I, <laughs> I'm not ready to start over. Um, and so I started looking around at graduate schools and it became pretty clear that the Stanford 
program and product design was the one place where you could broaden your interests, not get more and more focused. You know, are you interested in gas dynamics or, you know, certain types of mechanisms? And right. so I, I looked at a bunch of schools and I basically like I had probably a list of 10 schools and I had Stanford was one and everyone else was number two. And I just crossed my fingers and it worked out. Right. But that was a really broadening and pivotal experience for me. And, and why so? The thing that was wonderful at Stanford is I got to learn about the people side of things, of design, mm-hmm. of thinking about other people, of applying your creativity. And what I've realized over the years, I've always been fascinating machine of all is a human being, both anatomically from a healthcare point of view, as well as psychologically. Well, why do people think and feel the way they do? And so it was a wonderful opportunity to, to, to not turn my back on my technical background at Stanford, but open myself up to kind of world of design and specifically human centered design. Right. Well, and I knew that you had a very artistic sense when you were there, the, the, uh, one of the projects for this uh, smart product design course was a little challenge where the professor had brought in a little sh- mini shuffleboard type board <laughs> with little ball bearings with plastic rings around them. And, and we were supposed to create these little mechanisms that would slide the ball bearing down the, down the, uh, the shuffleboard deck. And uh, pr- you know, most people had they were shuffleboard sort of, bots. Yeah, that's exactly what they were. And, and, and most people had some sort of thing that had a little, you know, plunger type device would shoot the thing down and, and, uh, you know, solenoid that yeah, would the extend. The obvious thing was you take a solenoid and you control the charge on it. And- but, but yours was not that. Yours, <laughs> yours was a thing of beauty. Do you remember what you did for that project? Oh, I, I remember it well. I'm surprised anyone else does. <laughs> so. I thought it would be very cool and dramatic to have a, this large, at least by the scale of this game, pendulum. And so made yes. this big obelisk sort of that was maybe 15 inches high. And at the top, I put a little motor that I would very carefully time the pulses to, to get this swinging back and forth. And the, and the end of the arm was an electromagnet. And so it literally would <laughs> pick up the puck and it'd swing back and forth, <laughs> building dramatic tension all the while. And, uh, and then, then release it almost like bowling. Like if you're just stand there swinging back and forth and then let go of a bowling ball. And it was, it was complete success of my artistic vision. It was pretty much last in the class in terms of uh, accuracy. (laughs) It it didn't matter. It was a thing of beauty. I I knew, I knew you had a talent there. Well, thank you for noticing and remembering. (laughs) Was the whole program like uh, project based, like you just described, or you know, did you have to take like psychology courses or something like that? There, there were psychology courses. There were more design courses. Like, um, well, there's an interesting course called Need Finding. Mm-hmm. I, to this day, I find that fascinating. It's like, no, if you're going to solve problems first, you need to go out and find really good problems. So I, I liked that. And there was drawing. There wasn't much formal psychology, though. I'm into that these days. Um, gotcha. This particular course. Um, it was funny. We, we, it was called smart product design, you know, cause now anything that didn't have electronics was now dumb, of course. Of course. So <laughs> it was smart product design, which is still taught today. I mean, you know, all the kids playing with Arduinos and doing mechatronic design today. Um, in a lot of ways, you know, computing has advanced so dramatically in what now 30 years. Um, but they're doing the same thing. They're still soldering wires and writing little programs and uh, some of them the same language as we worked in um, to make things, little machines do interesting things. Mm-hmm. And how many of them are really writing in fourth? 
I haven't found too many people writing in force. <laughs> what is force? Never even heard of that one. It's a secret society, and Jeff, I think you've already said too much. Ooh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Some masked men going to come to my house tonight now? They may. If, if you hear a knock on the door late at night, don't answer it. All right, I'll give my baseball bat. But you can, if you're very careful, you can search on the, the inner tubes for fourth, F-O-R-T-H, and you'll find a very secret language. Well, there's an interesting story. One of my most memorable experiences at Stanford, um, Jeff, I'm sure you remember Larry Leifer, who oh, yes. taught smart product design. And by the way, I, he was an inspiration in hindsight. I was angry at him at the time because he was teaching stuff to us that he didn't know. <laughs> right. You know, he'd give assignments and he didn't know how to do what he assigned us to do, but somebody in the class would figure it out. And, and then, then, uh, you know, I kind of followed from them and we'd all learn together. But I still remember when I first arrived at Stanford, there was, uh, like maybe before even classes started, there was, uh, we gathered together in an auditorium to see some of the projects that other students had done. And one of Larry's students had taken a basic, um, robot arm, much like a human arm with, you know, three joints that could, you know, move and pick up things. This is a pretty big deal at the time, you know, just starting to see the early days of automation. What they'd done is taken this robot arm, put a dryer hose over it, just to give it a little bit more grace and elegance, moved it through a series of motions and set it to music. In fact, I remember to this day it was Eric Satie's Three Gymnopedes. It's a beautiful piece of music. <laughs> And it was jaw-dropping. It was like, it was as mesmerizing as any ballet I've seen at the theater. I'm like, oh my God, like machines can have personality and can elicit emotions. And, and that hit me more than anything else I think I saw when I first arrived at Stanford. That, that the work that we do that requires all this really hardcore analytic thinking and hard work can have that sort of poetic artistry to it. Yeah. And the, and the thing I took out of that program was I, I had uh, done my undergrad at Purdue and it was very much cut and dried, follow the equation, do the analysis, get the thing to work. And so when I worked on, on uh, my, my uh, design project for that program, which was a, uh, a robot gripper that could sense uh, torques and, and forces and, and uh, do some various things, it, it worked fine. And, and Larry spent no time saying, well, you need to make it bigger or faster. His, his comments repeatedly to me were, can you make this more elegant? Uh-huh. Craig, what was the end effector on the robot you just described? Was it the claw or was it an actual hand? You know, I don't remember what it was because it wasn't grabbing or moving anything. It was like, it's kind of like a ballet dancer and they're waving their hands around like they're, they're not holding anything. It probably was just, it's probably just a pincer that was closed. Yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking, but I thought it would be creepy if it was like a... <laughs> Luke Skywalker type hands. No, no, no. That would actually be normal. I was thinking like it'd be worse if it was a pincer or some kind. Yeah. Mostly I just remember it was more the grace in the, the overall arm. That's pretty cool. So during this period that we were at Stanford as grad students, there was another gentleman who was a little older who was also there as a grad student. Uh, who you later worked for, if I'm not mistaken. I'm sorry. <laughs> I thought, wasn't David Kelly there as a graduate student during that period? Uh, no, David Kelly was a graduate student in like the late 70s there. And so when when we were there, he had already formed, at the time, he had formed a company called Hovey Kelly Design. Okay. 
and he was teaching at Stanford. Oh, okay. Now, I didn't have David for any classes when I was at Stanford, but it was it was because of being at Stanford that I came into that uh, you know ecosystem or gravitational pull of that community, the product design community, and of what later became IDEO, but was Hubby Kelly Design. And, and so, how did, how did that happen? How did you you know did he walk? I mean, did you meet randomly, or did you walk in? try to apply for a job or did they come say, come work for us? Well, there were, there were people that I did have as instructors who worked at, um, uh, hubby Kelly or then, then that was becoming David Kelly design. Dean hubby was a partner that was moving off to other Mm -hmm. things. And, um, they thought enough of me to say, Hey, you should come in and interview. And I said, that sounds nice, but I, I, I feel a loyalty to bell labs partly because they're putting me through college right now. Right. And so, and so I returned actually to your home, Indianapolis, Jeff, um, to work for a couple of years, um, with Bell Laboratories. But, but then I, there was an itch that started then to do more design sorts of work to really be into consulting that, uh, needed to be it need to be scratched. And as I started to look around the world, it was kind of like the Stanford thing. It's like, I'm sure there's a bunch of places that do this. And I know there's this DKD, but I'll, I'll, I'll figure out who the, who the best places are. And I'll do this nice, thorough narrowing. It's like, well, there was DKD and there was, there was no one else that was really doing innovative engineering and just sort of design consulting. Right. And so I came out and, and I interviewed with David and I still remember when I interviewed with him, I came out we, we knew a lot of people in common, a lot of folks at Stanford, but I hadn't met him before. And so I came in and interviewed and then he invited me back in the next day. And he says, well, Craig, you know, I've talked to a lot of people and nobody said anything bad about you. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the bar. Um, but then he handed me an offer letter. And so that's all that mattered. Right. And the rest, as they say, is history. That was 1985 and the company was 17 people. Okay. So, and I think today I check late, but I think IDEO is about 600 people globally. When did uh, DKD become IDEO? That was in 1991. And it was um, shortly after I moved to Chicago um, to start DKD Chicago. Um, and we merged with two other firms, ID2, which is Bill Mogridge's California operation of Mogridge and Associates in London. And Matrix, which is Mike Nuttall's firm, which actually was also a spinoff of ID2. We'd collaborated with the firms, you know, we being the engineering design, them being the industrial designers. We collaborated on several projects. And so um, when the merger happened, it was kind of almost a formality. We'd been dating a long time. (laughs) But there's an interesting story that tells you a lot about David Kelly and about the sort of what it means to, to have a really... Um, kind of people focused culture. And it's, it's how IDEO ended up with a Chicago office. You know, people ask, well, what was the strategy? Is it, did you, did you put an office in Chicago because of the, you know, it's a transportation hub, the diverse economy there of Chicago and Midwest? Well, the real story goes like this. Um, Peg, my wife wanted to be, um, near her family. And so we were looking at opportunities here and I was talking to various design firms about joining them to lead up an engineering group. Or if I started my own company, would they want to work with me? And I started getting very serious with someone who will remain unnamed, a principal of a design firm. Then one day David walks up and says, Craig, can you come to my office? Like, okay. 
going to David's office. He says, what's this about you moving to Chicago? So this, this, this guy I was interviewing with had called David for a reference, completely <laughs> betraying confidences. You right. know, I'm like, oh. like uh, I'm sorry, David, I love this company, but just for personal reasons, we're thinking about moving to Midwest. And, and then David said words that changed my life and changed the history of the company. He said, well, just because you're moving halfway across the country doesn't mean you have to leave the company. Make me a proposal. And that is why there are 60 people working at IDEO Chicago today. Wow. I hope I get to be that good one day. Where I just pick a <laughs> spot on the map and someone will say, okay, yeah, we'll open a design center there. Yeah. I think if I said, I really want to move to Omaha, the answer might have been different. <laughs> well, you'd have to send them steaks then too, you know. Yeah. Doesn't come for free. Yeah. So, can you tell us a little bit about what what your proposal was and what it was like to show up in Chicago with basically a uh, you know a pencil and a calculator and say we're going to start an office? <laughs> well, it it was started with one of the most important ingredients all companies or, or offices are started with, which is ignorance. <laughs> like I had I had no idea what I was doing. I look back, I had this laughable proposal. It's like, um, well, I'll go there and let's see, every two months I'll hire a new person and we'll be at, you know, 10 people, you know, after a year and a half. And, you know, so it was, it was very naive. Um, but they said, well, some people at the company was like, I don't know, David. And I think David basically said, come on, what have we got to lose? <laughs> we'll, just, we'll just, we'll just say we have a, a guy in Chicago about the same time, um, Douglas Dayton who was a previous employee and someone David was very fond of and always regretted him leaving the firm, um, who was living in Boston, opened ID or DKD Boston. And so, so he knew Boston pretty well, but had been out of DKD for a few years. I knew DKD really well and living in the culture, but did Chicago well. And so Douglas and I kind of did this parallel experiment and, uh, and, uh, and that was really good. We kind of could compare notes and learn from each other and basically, you go out, you get one or two clients, you, you know, just try and keep that balance between getting new work and getting people. Um, the advantage I had is I could draw on the resource of all the people back in Palo Alto. So if I landed a big job, I just said, Hey, either fly out there a lot and do the work in Palo Alto or fly people out here to do the work. Mm-hmm. And so that was a really nice buffer so that, um, we could, uh, manage the work and the office through its, the entire history. It was, it was profitable every month of existence. Wow. So it's impressive. So, uh, maybe you can answer for me uh, another secret, uh, piece of, uh, IDEO lore. And that is the, the corporate name is I D E O four letters. But when everybody from the company says it, it becomes IDEO and the middle E gets dropped. Did everybody just get tired of the extra syllable or was there a specific reason for that? (laughs) Well, IDEO, the the inspiration for that is the Greek prefix as in ideology. So Mm -hmm. IDEO is a word. It doesn't stand for anything. Now, we shot ourselves in the foot by saying, "Mm, we really like the all caps, Um, you know, and and, uh, Dave Paul Rand, you know, just iconic, um, you know, logo designer, you know, hey, you just did. How about IDEO? Right now, this little startup. Um, And of course, you know, only capital letters would have worked in that, that blocky constructivist logo that he generated for us. Um, and then we mm-hmm. further shot ourselves in the foot by 
in the early days, we thought, oh, isn't that kind of cute? And we'd put like on little paper or letterhead type things we were making. Oh, it's an innovation and design and engineering organization. And then just further confuse people. Like, what does it stand for? It's like, it doesn't stand for any the word, IDEO. So fun, funny story. So um, my very first employee, um, Ron Worth, um, was actually just a summer intern. I think he was between his master's and his PhD work or something and worked with me for a summer. And, and so it's just, it's just Ron and I there. And, and, um, and we just converted from DKD to IDEO and a friend of mm-hmm. his called up and he says, look, Ron, I, I know you're working for this like easy going California company. What's this Heidi Ho bullshit when you answer the phone? <laughs> <laughs> So, so IDEO works better visually than it does audibly. By the way, I, there were, um, I was part of a lot of discussions, not the final arbiter, obviously, of the naming of the company. And IDEO wasn't my first choice, but. It, it's lasted pretty well, though. Uh, it's worked out okay. I don't think it's held us back. <laughs> right. Yeah. So IDE, IDEO, I'll try to keep reminding myself it's three syllables and not four. So IDEO is a design firm and it is associated with a type of process called design thinking but i have yet to come across a really good short description of what design thinking is can you help me in that regard well one thing i like saying design thinking the thing you need to understand about it is design thinking is an immunosuppressant (laughs) okay maybe i should explain please do so it's the same thing we've done all along, which is okay. There's, there's a methodology. We'll talk about that in a moment. But what I think it was David and Tim that coined the phrase. And, but what we are realizing is that, that we as a firm want to design and the sorts of things we're doing to have more influence in corporate America, in our clients. But, you know, the idea, you know, you go tell some CEO, you need a lot more design and designers around here. That just makes them nervous. Like we're going to have a bunch of like purple haired, you know, tattooed pierced people coming around doing wacky things right that that's scary makes them nervous yeah but if you say design thinking that just that just gives it so much of an air of intellectualism doesn't it and so (laughs) so by wrapping what we do in this phrase design thinking we can then insert it into organizations without triggering their immune response so that's why i call it immune so it's a cover (laughs) it's a cover um it is a good term i I consider it interchangeable with the phrase that I find a little more descriptive, which is commonly used at places like Institute of Design, a fine institution here in Chicago, which is human-centered design. It's a design process putting people at the center of everything you do. And that means you start by understanding needs, um, looking with an open mind, empathizing with the users, you know, not the people that buy your product, even though they may be the same people, but the end users of the product. And then going through a cycle of conceiving lots of solutions, Linus Pauling once said, to get a good idea, get a lot of ideas. So you come up with lots of ideas, but then quickly go through cycles of building and testing those with those users to find out what's good, what's bad, and evolve and iterate to a good solution. But again, you start with the human problem and you always go back to that as the measure of how you're doing. That, to me, is human-centered design, and that really is design thinking. And that seems to have been a re- pretty good recipe for success for IDEO. It is. I think it's a recipe for success in life. I didn't appreciate it how much, you know, until 
Tom Kelly's book, The Art of Innovation, came out. And it's like, okay, we're kind of showing here's our process that we use. I think we might have even still been called IDEO product development back there. Now IDEO is just a design or design and innovation firm. But that suddenly got traction all over the world and in all sorts of places we wouldn't expect in governments and hospitals and and um, in all sorts of different areas. And what I realized is that the principles that we advocate in design thinking or human-centered design are really the principles of life. I'm a parent. My kids are 15 now. But as I raise my kids, I think about it's like, well, gee, what do I want them to do? I want them to have empathy. And by the way, people often start with empathy, but there's a precursor to empathy, which is self-awareness, which is being aware of how you feel when you experience something. Gee, when I picked up that, when I closed that car door, when I did this, hmm, that made me feel confident, nervous, whatever, calm. So then having empathy for other people, having the confidence and creativity to generate some solutions and, and then to actually build those, but then also the humility to say, well, I don't know if it'll work. Let's, let's try it and see. Um, and then trying again and having persistence. It's like, aren't those, aren't those the sort of values we want humans on the planet to have? You know, empathy, persistence, creativity, willingness to try things. So in a lot of ways, design thinking in a lot of ways is, you know, kind of the principles of, of life in my mind, not to get too philosophical. Hey, we're all about philosophy on this uh, podcast, so don't worry about it. <laughs> so so uh, is storytelling a key principle of design thinking or human-centered design, or is it just something that seems to get a lot of press from time to time? You can do great design work and go through, you know, design thinking process without a lot of storytelling. But if you really are going to try and change the world, you need to make what you've done relevant to other people. And, and so bringing storytelling or a thoughtfulness about stories and narratives. And, you know, you made reference to Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Mm -hmm. Being mindful of that allows you to come up with better solutions, but also to communicate them. You know, I, I realized over the years at IDEOs, we migrated from really a product company to more of a service and broad innovation company where companies are coming to us and they were saying, hmm, what should we do next? We're a bank. What, 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 what is, what should we be doing next? That we had to, you know, look much broader than just the physical thing. And so we're designing experiences. And, and to this day, I consider myself an experience designer. And I tell my students, you're designing experiences. It's very liberating because now the spaces, the services, the products, all the things around are part of creating that experience. But if you just design an experience, how do you, how do you explain that? to your investor, to your boss, to your client. Yes. You know, if it's a physical product, you make the prototype and you put it on the table. Maybe you have a couple. Here's the works like prototype and here's the looks like prototype. If it's an app or something, maybe you say, oh, okay, here, like I have a prototype on my phone. Um, but if you're designing a new experience, you actually have to really get good at storytelling. And so what happens is, you know, people think of storytelling like journalism as, you know, either writing the story about something that already happened, that's journalism, or maybe writing some fictitious story of something you imagined that's kind of fiction. Mm -hmm. But if your fiction is intentional about a future reality that you believe is possible and better, well, then you're designing. And so in a sense, we're, if you want to communicate a future experience, you write a story about it. In fact, one of my favorite books to recommend to people that are getting into service design, innovation is, um, Scott McLeod's 
understanding comics. So Scott McCloud, a great comic artist. And he basically pulls back the cover. How do comics work? Why, when you see a pain like this and a pain like that, do you go, oh, I know time has transpired? Or why do you know this person's thinking that or whatever? It's like, because there are mechanics about the the structure of comic books that explain to you what's happening amongst characters and spaces mm-hmm. in this. And if you understand those, then you can communicate your new thing. You imagine some future where, um, just to fall on financial services, where someone walks in a bank and knows where, who they are, and then they're interacting with this person in one way, but then there's also this machine that understands something. And, you know, I'm standing here or sitting here waving my hands to explain this. But if I drew a picture of panels, a storyboard, just like they do in ads and in movies, a storyboard, they would show you, oh, you could then see that. And that's, that's a, a vehicle for telling the story of a future experience. And if it's good enough, people say, all right, I'll help you build that. Neat. Is, is that technique limited to those fields where, you know, human emotion is, is critical to, to the sale? You know, I think of, yes, if, if you're going to a bank, you can have a favorite bank and you have a better experience going into this lobby than that lobby. Or if you're using a computer app, it, it invokes emotions that the other one doesn't. Uh, on the other hand, I think about, uh, in my career, I was designing industrial production machinery where, so, where some person on the line was hitting a couple buttons and thing, you know, the machine was shoving stuff together. Or, for instance, Carmen is working on, uh, IC chips that really no use, you know, there might be some engineer down the way who has to interface with it, but the, the end user really doesn't know that chip is in there. Is, is the storytelling confined to certain types of products or is it universally applicable? No, I think it's applicable to any product which a human interacts with. And the closer you look, you realize the the majority of things in our life that there is someone. And maybe it is, as in your, your industrial equipment example, a person on the line. But wow, you know, if they're bored or if they have a sense of, you know, does this instill a little bit more pride in them or do they have confidence they know they're doing it right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, can they easily correct something, you know, there's all sorts of things that get into their situation as a human. You know, it's funny, the field of human factors really goes back, I think, mostly in military World War II sort of era. And that, uh, you know, okay, we got planes going down and well, it could be, it could be structural factors, it could be electrical factors, could be medical, or it could be human factors, like the human was just sort of a person, uh, a piece of the machine, right? Right. And the, unfortunately, they're imperfect. They don't have perfect vision or memory and things like that. So we have to go to a lot of trouble to design around them. Um, human but, factors were how the machine turned the human into goo. <laughs> right. And so, but with a little more empathy in that, what you realize is, you know, humans are amazingly competent and capable of many things. Yeah, there's things that machines do a lot better than them. And just understanding the human dimension really well you can design systems that are much much better between humans and machines the whole man machine interface or mmi is some of the people refer to it right so before we did this uh, podcast you and i had shared a couple of emails and we talked about the fact that there were certain types of stories uh, you had nicely categorized it into three areas that there were there were backstories of what we do in engineering, which is kind of what this podcast specializes in, inviting on engineers when we talk about, you know, our experiences in it as engineers. 
And then there are also stories about products and companies and brands, which sort of instill a sense of purpose. And that is kind of a uh, specialty for your consulting firm because you advise companies on how to position themselves and how to uh, design their products. And there are also stories of real people that we want to influence or impact, that we want to somehow have our designs or, or creations benefit their lives. So can you give us a sense of when you are doing design work, what kind of story you're looking for and what makes for a particularly good story to to move the design in the correct direction? Sure. Well, I, I first want to just point out the irony. You know, we started this in discussion about early in my career. It's like, ah, oh, I was I was the classic nerd. It's like it's all about the numbers and the calculations. And if you if you're a master of those, you can get the right answer. You know, and I'm like, oh well, you know, how many, you know, English or psych classes do I have to take? Like what's the minimum? Because that's just kind of was diverting me from what really mattered. And right. And today I'm just so excited about more deeply understanding and developing mastery around that understanding of language and how language affects us. What you call something really does. A rose is not a rose by any other name. And, um, and understanding how people perceive things. And so anyway, with that, I'm kind of in, I don't know, kind of the phase of my life right now is very focused on stories. Um, farmhouse at Leo Burnett, the innovation center that I help lead. I mean, it, it's just, just kind of hard to believe that I, you know, I'm working at Leo Burnett, an ad agency. You know, I would have laughed at that years ago. Right. It's like, you know, if, if we do our job well, these would be great products. You don't need anybody to write silly ads for them, right? Sell themselves. And they would sell themselves and it sort of build a better mousetrap. And, and I've come around so much that I'm even a, an inferior product on some technical, um, you know, usability, if it is imbued and wrapped and consistent with a story of here's what this means, here's what our brand stands for, here's what it means in your life, that's a better product because that's how we, that's how we make sense of the world and a sense of ourselves. So, um, it, it's interesting, by the way, there's a great um, book, Winning the Story Wars. It's really kind of written for ad folks. It uses Joseph Campbell's hero's journey as a metaphor. You know, there's the, the person they write, there's the challenge where they rise to the challenge. There's a mentor they meet and, you know, and, and there's the climax and it gets resolved and everything, you know, kind of call to action happens in there. And the thing that they point out is that your brand, and by the way, you can substitute brand or product because those get wrapped right in, in there. But if you have a company and you have a product, your brand is not the hero. That's a mistake a lot of people make. It's like, oh, it's so cool. Look at this great technology and talk about all the specs. And engineers were, were want to make the product a hero. The person who uses it is the hero. Your product is the mentor, the one that helps the hero achieve their potential. And so as a broad arc of a story, that's what I find um, interesting. So when we talk with clients about, about sort of the story and purpose, Literally, um, we have a, a tool we use at, at Leo Burnett called the Purpose Workshop. And we sit down with the leaders of the company and say, what does your brand stand for? And I, I say this with students, with individuals, like, what do you stand for? And there's a really interesting question. You know, if your brand stopped existing tomorrow and just disappeared off the face of the earth, why would it matter? And you need to have a good answer for that. And sometimes company, almost all companies have an answer, but they may not know it. And so we have to 
get to that and reveal that purpose. Now you know what they stand for, and it makes it so much easier to design products that fulfill that purpose. You know, I used, I used to think mission statements were a bunch of hooey that companies would write. Right. But I realize now they really, if, if done right and committed to them, it's central to the strategy. You know, was it, was it Michael Porter who that said, you know, strategy is kind of the art of what you say no to. It's here's what we are and knowing what you're not. Right. And so a good purpose is really about telling what is the story of your company. And you look at any great brand and you can say what it stands for. It's a story about empowering people or bringing good design to people or always being there when you need it, whatever it may be. Yeah. Yeah. There's, the, the, go ahead. I was going to say there's, there's a uh, artist named uh, Hugh McLeod who has a, uh, a drawing that it has the words in it. it. Usually he has some sort of abstract sketch and, and a little saying in it. And, and uh, this one I always remember, it says the market for something to believe in is infinite. <laughs> and it's, it seems to me that, you know, for all the, for all the concentration we do as engineers trying to do the analysis and the math and the calculations that what you're telling us, Craig, is it comes back to feeling a sense of purpose. You know, it, it, all this other stuff doesn't matter if we don't feel like we're doing something useful and something meaningful. Yeah. And so, and, and I think the meaning, you know, the meaning for a company comes in that, but ultimately this gets back to human centered design. And I think the most compelling thing to focus on are the stories that we enable and that exist already with the people who use our products. Um, get an, an example of this is, you know, over the years I've, I've done a lot of work with Eli Lilly there in Indianapolis and they have a lot of diabetes products and, you know, diabetes is, you know, uh, it's, it's a very prevalent condition. I guarantee all of you and, and everyone listening knows someone with diabetes. And the thing is, is it's, um, you know, a chronic condition. So unlike, you know, if you get cancer, you go to war and you battle it and hopefully you win and then it's gone. Right. Diabetes is a chronic condition. So you have to make peace with this as part of your life. And so testing your blood sugar, giving yourself injections, things like this. And what we found is the story of people's, many people's lives when they move to injectable therapy is like, you know, I feel um, shamed or subconscious about this. They, I mean, we had quotes where people said, oh, you know, you shouldn't do that here, even in a public bathroom. And so their story was this disease is starting to define my life rather than me defining my life. And I want to, I want to reclaim my life. And so we put as a priority designing products that fit discreetly into people's lives so they can more easily, whether it's make a, take a blood measurement or give themselves an injection. And so our story is we're a partner in discreetly caring for this condition. So that's our story that fits in with their story of wanting to reclaim their life. And so I, I don't think the engineers as they're working on the little mechanisms in the um, in these really, basically you're selling like little tiny plastic disposable micrometers with these injection devices, you know, we're thinking, Oh, I'm, uh, I'm fulfilling a story here every moment they did the engineering calculations. But in the end, at a high level, the designers working on those projects understood that they were about changing people's lives and respecting and responding to, to those individual stories of people. Yeah. I had a question for you, uh, Craig. How do you 
think an engineer, you know, as they're going through their career, how do you think you become a good storyteller? Uh, what's required? Should it happen in the classroom? You know, should you take liberal arts courses or is it kind of just get through the science aspect of school and then figure it out in the field? Well, and I don't even claim to be a good storyteller myself, but I think that, that the pre, the, what I will say is to become a good designer or design engineer requires really kind of developing a, a whole new mind, as Dan Pink called it in his book, a, a book I still recommend to engineers who go, God, I think there's more to life than this, you know, that, that I want to, I want to, can I be creative and still be technical? And so that notion of just developing empathy and understanding for the human condition and, and realizing what is the, what does this mean to people? So I think being thoughtful about that is the most important step that it's not just about the, the calculation of the product, but it's about what it does for other people. And so really thinking about that and putting through that lens, once you do that, then you start to see that experience that people are having and whether you can articulate as a great story or not, I think that's that's a matter of just you know care and nurturing. Just like you can learn to sketch, sketching is is generally highly regarded at design firms and certainly industrial designers, also engineers. But you can get good at it. You just just practice it and be aware of how you're doing. Be critical of what you've done and keep iterating. And you can get to be a better writer just so I can be a, a better sketcher. By the way, a, a story I love telling is. Um, I've been interviewed a lot of engineers over the years in my role at IDEO and since, and um, I often would subject them to a sketching test, a drawing test. And the drawing test went something like this. At some point in the interview, they, they have their resume out, hopefully a portfolio showing some things, and, and I'll kind of slide a blank piece of paper out there on the table and a pen or pencil there and, and say, well, explain to me you know, what you did, how this mechanism works or whatever. Can you, can you draw it? <laughs> and basically... The moment the pen hit the paper, they passed the test because it was really just, are you willing? I didn't care if they drew stick figures, but just, are you willing to put yourself out and start to draw? Because if you're willing to do it, then you're willing to share your ideas in that form to start to communicate that way. And by the way, if you're not so good, you'll get better. But, um, and I tell that often in workshops and I'll draw a really bad, you know, um, uh, stick person and say that's the low that's the bar everybody here can draw and 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 let's start getting visual because it's such a a rich way of communicating if you just limit yourself to numbers and letters there's so many ideas that um you can't articulate and if you can't articulate other people can't either criticize it or make it better or both then you come off as not knowing what the heck you're talking about if you can't convey your ideas yeah in fact i've i've had a lot of success professionally just drawing other people's ideas, you know, everybody's sitting around a table yammering about this or that. And I'll go to the whiteboard and say, so is this what you meant? I'll draw three circles in the line between them and go, are you saying that this relates to that? And, and, and someone will go, yeah. And, and this too, or they'll say, no, you're completely wrong, but now they'll correct it. And now we're all focused on something and we, we know what we're talking about as compared to just, you know, abstract words. And so in, do you consider this sort of visual representation part of the storytelling process? Or is that something separate? Well, I think, in a sense, they're all forms of prototyping. You know, you have it. A, prototype is just a way of expressing an idea that other people can interact with it and say, hey, it's working or not. And so telling a story, making a drawing, building a physical prototype, 
writing a little script. And by the way, you know, if you're designing services, you're designing scripts. Um, if you're designing spaces, you're designing sets. Um, so a lot of it is like theater. Mm -hmm. I put all of those in the category of prototypes, which is just expressions of your ideas that people can interact with and give meaningful feedback. Okay. You had mentioned earlier the the language of stories, and I was I was thinking, well, a story has language, and it has it tries to convey emotion, and there's some narrative, and there are characters, and I was going to ask about you know whether there was some magic formula there, but what I'm hearing is it's it's all about getting the listener to understand a potential future. Yes, and you know there are, and I'm not an expert in the, the types of storytelling and language, but. Um, but I do know that, that, you know, there's the scientific voice, you know, where, where no one is present at all. Right. It has been found, you know, like, wait a minute. What? By whom? <laughs> By whom? Who, who did what? And taking the other extreme of making it first person and personal. And, and by the way, and this is something you'd see, if you read a comic book, it wouldn't just say customer X or, or Mr. Jones. It would, it would be a real character and you would give them real characteristics. And so this notion of developing personas, like imagine a person that may be a target user, a typical user, maybe an extreme user that you really want to try and address their problems. And you go, and we've done this at, at, at IDEO. It's like, okay, we did some research and now we're going to call this person Sarah. Sarah's 23, just graduated with this degree and is working in this city and we'll cover all, you know, just got a new puppy, is worried about the relationship with her boss, whatever it may be. And you can fill all this and and they're not untrue they're based on real people that you've seen but what you're doing is you're you're bringing to life a person that you can now your listeners can now care about now when sally goes to the bank or to wash her clothes or whatever the experience is that relates to your product people give a damn because you know and they can imagine that right and they can go yeah i felt like sally or oh sally reminds me of my daughter or whatever it may be but it's a real person that you care about. Right. And it sort of gets back to the, uh, the better mousetrap. You may have the better mousetrap, but if no one cares, no one's going to take action on it. Right. So, Craig, what is the bridge between hard engineering and uh, emotionally and effective, emotional effective engineers? You know, this I, I, I found fascinating because I always saw these as sort of two different worlds. Um, and it, took me a lot of years to realize the connectedness. And in fact, what I found interesting about engineering is what in the end it could do in terms of affecting humans. And so this, this growing interest in how we feel the way we do has, has been kind of growing me for years. And so I, I, I joke that there's this class I've always wanted to take ever since Stanford and I, and I've never seen it anywhere. And so I finally came up with a solution to this, which is I decided to teach it. And um, I, I fortunately had some friends, willing victims, if you will, um, at Northwestern, where I'm involved with the um, Siegel Design Institute, which is a, a wonderful program there teaching design thinking to engineering students. And I advised a program called Engineering Design and Innovation. So this is a program the reason I relate to it is it's for people just like uh, I think you and I years ago, Jeff, that ended up at Stanford, mm-hmm. who have an undergraduate engineering degree that say, hmm, I think there's more to life. I, I'm not ready to go to work. I'm really interested in this design thing. And can I round out and complement my engineering skills 
with these design methods. And so that's what the EDI program is all about. And, uh, and so I proposed and it was accepted to teach this experimental course this past fall, um, that, um, after a bunch of back and forth, the, the toughest thing was coming up with a name for the class. We finally settled on a designing product interactions. You know, there's, we, we thought about things like interaction design or user experience design. And if you've never heard those before together, you'd go, yeah, that, that's what we're, we're designing experiences. We're designing a user experience. We're designing interactions. Um, but the fact is, is those terms have quickly been co-opted and quite frankly devolved to mean I'm building a web page. You know, I do wireframes and it's like <laughs> it's I'm, I'm pushing pixels. It's UI. I'm a UI designer. Like, wait, user interface, that should be everything. You know, when, when's the last time you like opened door and go, wow, that felt great. Hey, that was good user interface. But you know, the, that door engineer wouldn't call themselves a UI designer. So anyway, so to distinguish from that, we called it designing product interactions. And it was, in a sense, it was an entire class dedicated to one simple question with multiple meanings. And that question is, how do you feel? How is it that you as a person come to feel and experience things? So it was sort of 50% kind of mechatronic engineering design and 50% perceptual psychology. So I and these um, eight graduate student victims, um, basically, <laughs> we, we invited psych, mostly psychology professors. I also um, had Don Norman come in as a guest speaker and uh, the design of everyday things, a wonderful thought leader. If, if, if anyone's interested, in fact, in hindsight, the inspiration for this class and a lot of my career goes back to the design of everyday things, which just got reintroduced its 25th anniversary edition, um, which is a a lot of he's a psychologist and thinks a lot about why do we think and feel the way we do about products. And so we'd have psychologists come in and talk about perception, you know, whether it's visual perception or auditory or, you know, or tactile and how we perceive things. And, and by the way, the different illusions, there's, you know, there's audio illusions, just like optical illusions. There's illusions where you mix those two together. There's a fascinating um, phenomena called the McGurk effect. M-C-G-U-R-K, you know, Google that, you'll see some interesting videos and the McGurk effect, there's, there's a part of your brain that simultaneously integrates multiple channels. So what you're seeing, what you're hearing, and by the way, this is why if you're ever watching a movie or something and the sound gets too far out of sync, if it's mm -hmm. just a few milliseconds, you're fine. If it gets more than that, your brain freezes up, right? That's because this part of the brain cannot integrate those. And in fact, what happens is your, your brain is taking all these inputs and trying to make some reasonable hypothesis about what's really happening in the world. So I'm fascinated. So it's like pareidolia? I don't know what that is. Oh, uh, I've seen patterns in random noise. Oh, that may be. Or synesthesia, where you mix senses and yes. people. Sensing numbers as colors. Colors, things like that. Which, yeah. by the way, I believe it's, we're all on a continuum there. Oh, I, really, I realized years ago, you know, I remember people's names by the vowels they have. And in fact, vowels have certain colors to me. And I'd been remembering names for decades before it kind of, re I, I realized that myself. So my theory is everybody's synesthetic to some degree. Mm -hmm. But the point is, is you interact with some product and how do you feel is an emotional question. Like, oh, do you feel confident? Let's just go back to the, the, um, 
the diabetes example. You just use this device to give yourself an injection. And do you feel confident in that product? And by the way, I would say that your confidence in the product is completely intertwined with your confidence in yourself. If the product works well, you feel like, yeah, it went right. I did right. It did right. Everything's fine. And so you can have an emotional feeling about that. But you know, if your brain was just sitting there in a jar, you wouldn't have had an emotional response. It could only have that because of all the sensory inputs. And what were those sensory inputs? So did this device have a nice satisfying click? Was that a loud click? Was that audible? Is that tactile? You know, what did you see? You know, what was the damping rate as you pushed on that? Was there any wiggle in this? All of these things that are sensory inputs that you have contribute to what your experience is. And the reason this class and this field, if it's if it's a field, we have to come up with a name for it, is so important now is the world's changing and that the, the number of sensors and effectors we have is just growing exponentially. I mean, you just look at what's inside your phone. It has, you know, it has GPS, it has gyros, it has a, it has a proximity center, knows, sensor knows whether your face is there. And so the more we can sense and the more we can actuate, we have all these smart materials that can morph and actuate and do different things that we can actually dynamically change the properties of products real time. So our ability to change your sensory inputs that you're getting from products is growing. And so we have this, this wonderful ability to change how you feel when you're interact with a product. So that's what I'm geeking out on uh, academically these days. And so far, the students seem to be uh, going along with the whole ruse. <laughs> but, but that seems counterintuitive in a lot of ways because engineers love to limit degrees of freedom. Uh, they love to limit how people interact with their products. Well, it depends on what the goal is. I mean, they want to limit degrees of freedom partly if they have a deadline and a budget. Yeah. So they need too many, they get the variables out of there. And um, they may want to limit some of the things people do with products in it that might break it. Mm -hmm. But I think increasingly we have to realize that as designers, we really increasingly we're becoming meta designers and that we're creating tools for other people to create things with. There's a company now called sketch chair. You sketch up a chair, you send it in and they send you back laser cut plywood that you lock together. And it's the chair that you sketched. So, so the designer of that software is really a meta designer. They're designing a tool that lets other people do things. And I think increasingly we're designing whether it's hackable or tunable products, you know, could hack even things just like, you know, you know, um, Instagram filters. It's like, Oh, we're giving people tools to express their creativity. It's Python in the physical world. <laughs> that would work. Yes. <laughs> so, so anyway, I think that, um, I think we're ending a new era where how our products respond to us is changing. You know, a great example also comes from Northwestern. In fact, the co-teacher with this, with me on this class, Joe Mullenbach is a PhD student in the surface haptics lab. And so, um, for the listeners who don't know what haptics is, haptics really just means touch. It's the, the field of touch. Most people, when they say it, they're referring to haptic technology, which is touch feedback. Uh, you might have a game that vibrates when you hit the wall or, or, you know, um, robotic surgery gives feedback to the surgeon so they know when they're touching things. But the thing we interact with the most these days, the most important are our devices that are screens and they're just two dimensional and there isn't really 
haptics on that. You might, I think, I think it was RIM a few years ago that had, when you press a button on screen, it would, um, there was a little piezo kind of hammer that would hit the back of the screen and so you'd feel a little click like you're hitting a button. Mm-hmm. And, the, and there were visual things, you know, I have an iPhone and you see the little, uh, the letters pop up to kind of give you feedback. But what um, Ed Colgate, he's the, the lead professor of this lab, and his team have done is they found a way to dynamically control the coefficient of friction of a surface. Now, wow. to any mechanical engineer, this is that yes, this is a wow thing. It's like that's a material property. You just look it up once, and if you know this material A and material B, you look, and there's the the, the coefficient of friction. Okay, maybe there's a static and dynamic, but that's a variable is a whole new world. And so using ultrasonic vibration and using electrostatic force they can actually change the coefficient of friction and even move your finger and and the interesting thing is as your finger moves back as you get forces on your finger moving back and forth laterally you have the perception of a z dimension that's actually moving up and down because you it feels the same as if you were sliding over bumps so this is where the, the it's sort of like a tactile um uh illusion that you think it's something different and so now they can provide touch feedback on us on a screen where you can feel clicks and feel a surface while you're interacting with what's on the screen that's kind of a whole new world mm-hmm. and so i think that's just one example of all the things that the world's just going to become smarter kind of the internet of things smarter and more connected and more malleable and uh, we as designers need to make wise choices as to what we make those phenomenal properties and, and devices do. Craig, how big of a limitation is the user? Um, given, <laughs> well, I mean, I was, I was literally thinking that as, as somebody who experiences products, it must be really annoying for designers that I have certain tropes or expectations that I, I kind of expect. And I'm thinking about the difference between Excel spreadsheets and Google spreadsheets. And I get really igno- uh, uh, annoyed when, Google doesn't behave exactly as Excel because I'm used to Excel. You know, I don't, I don't see those as limitations. What I mean, it is, it's challenging if half the world has one way of thinking and half has mm-hmm. the other and you have to decide who to design for. But the fact that people have mental models, I mean, you remember the, the old notion form follows function, right? Yeah. And, and there's a lot of truth that in certain objects, like let's just make it obvious. Okay. If it's going to swing open as a hinge, let's make it real obvious. There's a hinge there that people know. And, and so there's an expression there, but especially as we get into software and as we get into these smart products, the form can be whatever it wants. And so in fact, what the form should be is based on what is the metal model, the trope, the preconception, how is it that the user expects it to work? And, and so, I don't know, maybe they're interacting with some database and they imagine it as this giant Rolodex that continues round and round. But in fact, we know, we know for a fact that the database is some, uh, it's a three dimensional grid, right? Or whatever it is. Yes. Well, the engineers, the engineers say, well, that's what it really is. So that's what we need to express. Well, bullshit, you know, that's what, that's what, <laughs> that's what software is for. And so we can design the interface to reflect the mental model, the preconceptions of the users. And by the way, we have loads of these, like, like, okay, maybe spreadsheets, there's a few different classes, but like I'm sitting here, there's a water bottle. We all know how to open and drink from a water bottle, right? Like, okay, you hold in this hand, you twist this way and then you remove the cap and then you pour, right? So, so 
we can we can assume that people know how to do that. It's a pretty pretty safe assumption, right? Well, we may have some interaction, either real or virtual, that we want to help people transfer something one to the other. We can say, hey, we're going to use the water bottle model. So we can now, I mean, and there are hundreds of things. Like, I guarantee everybody here and everybody listening knows how to play a guitar. They may know how to play badly, but they know how to hold it. And you squeeze over here and you swing your hand over here and it makes some sound. That's, Only it was a good sound. Yeah, it would, be, it would be bad sound by me and many people. But you understand that. Most people here know how to drive a car. Okay, you do this with your hands and this with your feet. Maybe a few people know how to drive a stick shift. So it's like, so we have those. So these are, all, we can count on those. And so you bring up a really good thing, which is people have all these things they know about. How do we use that for good? How do we help them learn some new software? Maybe they're na- navigating some three-dimensional space. And so we go, hmm, is this like flying a plane or driving a car or riding a scooter? And all of which people have mental models around. So if we tap into that, they don't have to learn something from scratch. They can they can build on what they already know. I mean, in some ways, this is just extending this this whole notion of skeuomorphism. Is that a word that's mm-hmm. come up on your podcast? Not so yet, but it should. So that that's my new that's my word of the year: skeuomorphism. Look it up, everybody. Um, <laughs> but it's this notion of this this new thing. Should it be? referential to some old thing, you know, should the alarm on my computer look like an old, you know, analog alarm with two bells on the top, you know, Hey, I'm old enough that it works for me. Many people argue that, you know, there are people using this that have never seen a mechanical alarm clock. Okay. Fair enough. But there are things that are, aren't obsolete, like driving a car or whatever else that are complete interactions, not just an icon. And how do we tap into those? And in fact, when people misuse products, oh, gee, I thought it worked this way. It's not that they're dumb. It's not that they didn't understand. They didn't follow your instructions. It's that they have a mental model that you haven't learned yet. Now, if they're in the minority, maybe that's okay. But, you know, I'm a believer that for the most part, if the product doesn't work, then the designer's at fault. You know, which, which by the way, more and more people are. You know, I, I remember when I was a kid, I come, came from a town of very humble people. And, you know, if, the, I don't know, if they bang their door, their shin with the door of their car when they open it, they go, dumb me. I don't know how to open my door, you know, and, and they would blame themselves. And that still happens today. But what I see increasingly in society is something goes wrong, not quite wrong. And they go, Hey, that isn't quite right. And then they say something amazing. They go, somebody didn't design this right. And I just think that's, fascinating and 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 i think it's a good sign for the field of design because there's accountability there's awareness that there aren't design fairies running around the world but they're real people making decisions about all the products we have around us and they can make good decisions or bad and we need to reward the good and punish the bad with our purchase decisions (laughs) (laughs) so this this area of uh product interaction is this at all related to the idea of uh micro interactions there's a there's a book by uh, Dan Saffer called Micro Interactions that talks about some of these issues. You know, I'm not familiar with that book, but I can imagine what uh, that it, it taps into some of the same things that it's talking about. What are the little tiny experiences that you have with a product that lead up to this? You know, I've been looking for more reading material in my class. If I right. teach it again, and I think um, that maybe it's going to go on the book list. Okay. Um, so can you tell us a little more about, uh, your work with, uh, Leo Burnett? 
this sounds interesting that an engineer goes and works for an advertising firm. Yes, it's a, it's a strange world indeed. You know, I it's funny, I used to kind of poo-poo the whole ad world, in, including their model of, you know, they have a very formal structure where you have account people and creative people and, you know, never the twain shall meet. Mm-hmm. And uh, whereas at, at IDEO, for good and bad, we kind of, everybody did everything. And so, like, the person that led the client would lead the brainstorm, would pull everything together. And, and there were a lot of people, myself included, that prided ourselves in being able to do all of that. But the interesting thing is what you see is, yes, it's a little bit more siloed, but there are people that are exquisite at account management. And there are creative people that are pretty wacky that, that kind of maybe shouldn't be in front of the client all the time, but they're really talented and we need to find a, a happy place for them. That's why a lot of just sort of offbeat people in it in the advertising world is like they can find a little comfortable place where they can contribute and create within that. Mm-hmm. But the thing I find most interesting is, you know, the, the, the people at Leo Burnett that I work with are every bit as creative and talented as the designers of IDEO, just in different dimensions. You know, you know, ideas um, that are just brilliant at creating three dimensional forms that we visually interact with and tactilely interact with, um, really compelling. And there are people at Leo Burnett that are just as creative with the written word or the spoken word. By the way, I think it's interesting when people share their creative work, like it might be a concept for an ad or a new service or whatever, it's performance art. They'll, they'll gather around. They don't write it down and hand it in. They perform it. And so, They'll get in a room and the person, usually people read their own, but they'll sometimes they'll have someone else read it and they read it and everyone's silent. You might even close your eyes to just hear the story. It's like, it's meant to be delivered over time audio. And so you can listen to that and absorb it much like hopefully many people are absorbing this discussion we're having right now in the stories here. And right. so the creativity in language there is just really phenomenal. There's also great communication designers or graphic designers at at, uh, at both at places like IDEO and at Leo Burnett. But uh, so they come with a different culture, different practices, different skills, and at the end, we're applying those to improve human conditions. And you know that's that's the core. So in the advertising world, that's pretty well accepted. You can go in and act something out, but. How would you go to, you know, a, a customer like an Eli Lilly or a, a, you know, a Fortune 500 company that's a little more in the scientific engineering realm? They may look at you a little funny if you start to act stuff out in the middle of the uh, the boardroom. You need to acknowledge that there's an emotional component. And all the way up, I don't care, even if it is the COO or CFO even analyzing some numbers, you can bring in a personal story. And and I've been surprised if you know, at, at IDEO, we'd go out and do a lot of field work. And you'd come back, and you could just do a short couple-minute video that's just a few clips. It might even be still images with a few quotes. But they are real people mm-hmm. that said, um, you know, said something compelling, like, I never thought I'd live to um, be able to eat out with my sister. Or something like that. Just something like, and, and you go, wow, this really happened. This person's life is changed with this product or this person really does have the problem and we need to solve it. And, you know, it's funny 
companies are focused on a lot of data, but it's really, we're talking about, let's be fact-based. Well, the fact that a person had that emotional feeling, that's a fact. I didn't make that up. It's a fact and they can't deny it. And it's, it's amazing how all the way up to CEOs given a presentation with that and by the data of, okay, we could make this, this margin, this cost, this reliability, whatever, that that's very compelling especially if they understand anything about brand. And this is why marketing people tend to be a little bit more receptive to this because they understand the importance of how people feel about their company. Well, looking at the uh, clock here on the computer screen, it looks like we've again run over the hour. And uh, so we should probably think about wrapping this up and letting you go. Do you have a particular thought you'd like to finish on, Craig? You know, the thing I'd like people to think about, I mean, I assume everyone listening to this has some technical skills and abilities and interests. And I applaud that. We need more people that can understand how the world works so we can change it um, and improve it. And yet I encourage everybody to think they may be deep in that circuit or that mechanism or that piece of equipment, but stepping back and going, what, how does this affect people? And how does this piece I'm doing trace back to the experience someone's going to have? to where this company is going and how we're going to make a difference in people's lives. And I think if you look close, you realize there are a lot more ways that people are impacted by that than, than, uh, than you might at first think. And that by watching and listening to those people, you can understand them better and you can do better engineering. And by putting humans at the center of what you do. Right. And it seems that that listening and watching is an important part of that process. It comes down to being curious and empathetic. The next time someone misuses your product, instead of cursing them and seeing this shit going, hmm, I wonder why that is. And study that. And you may discover a need that no one else is addressing. And you can give yourself an advantage by solving for that. You may even find yourself, oh, there's a whole better way to solution, a better solution to this, because they're thinking it's this type of problem. Well, maybe we can present it as that type of problem. Some uh, wonderful advice, and we should uh, we should probably wrap up here and let you go this evening, Craig. If someone is interested in uh, what you have to say or or your ideas, where should they get a hold of you? Well, my company is called TBD Innovation, and, and the story behind that is the Venn diagram that I've drawn throughout my career of technology and design and business. Mm-hmm. Design being kind of the placeholder for the human side of this, and so T. Um, D and B, if you change the order, you get TBD. And um, I thought that was a fun reference to the ambiguity that I embrace in all of my work. <laughs> it doesn't mean well, a friend of mine told me, that sounds like a bad name. Sounds like you don't know what you're doing. And I, to which I said, you know, do any of us? It doesn't say we'll never know, but we need to enter into problems saying there are certain things we don't know, but the point of this exercise is to help figure them out. So, tbdinnovation.com is my website and you can find out about me there. Terrific. Well, thank you so much for uh, joining us this evening. Thanks for having me. It's been a, a real pleasure talking with all of you. Yeah, we appreciate it. Absolutely. Come back to see us again real soon. All right. The Engineering Commons is produced in affiliation with Big Beacon, a social movement for transforming engineering education, located on the web at bigbeacon.org. For more information about the podcast you've just heard, please visit theengineeringcommons.com. Our theme music is by Paul Stevenson.